Hi there, it's Mark from Third Shot Sports. Welcome to Pickleball Problems. Alright, welcome to Pickleball Problems. I'm your host, Mark Renison, and today we take a few questions from Tim Bogus, who emailed us, hello at thirdshotsports.com, to ask us a few questions related to technique, some questions related to etiquette, even questions related to balls. We're going to talk about all about that just in a minute. Stay close. Hey there, it's Mark again. Just a quick message. We have a couple of really cool programs, Pickleball Coaching International and The Pickleball Lab. And what's really cool is that you can now make some money from them. We just launched our affiliate program, and it's super simple. Here's how it works. You spend 18 seconds signing up to get a special affiliate link. And then you tell your friends about the Pickleball Lab or Pickleball Coaching International. If they sign up using your link, you get paid. I know, it's easy. You get 20% commission, so that's almost 20 bucks per sign up. It's super easy to do, and you can find out all the details at thirdshotsports.com affiliate. That's thirdshotsports.com affiliate. All right, welcome back to the show. Here's the first question from Tim Bogus, who sent in, says, I've recently noticed that on my forehand dinks, I sometimes lose sight of the ball behind my arm slash paddle, which can cause mishits. It's not very often, but it's super frustrating when it does happen. I'm guessing I need to move my feet or rotate my trunk to set up a non-interfering shot. But I'm not anticipating ahead of time, so I don't think of changing my body position until I miss the shot. Any suggestions? All right, Tim, so this is kind of an unusual one, or maybe this is one that's easier to understand if I could kind of see what you look like. Generally speaking, when you make contact with the ball, whether it's a forehand or backhand, you want the impact point to be out front between your body and the net, and usually a little bit off to the side. Assuming you're right-handed, that would mean a little bit off to the right. So you're kind of extending your arm forward and to the right. And usually from that position, there shouldn't be much of a problem seeing the ball. That being said, you can't actually see the ball make contact with the paddle, especially when you're talking about things at high speed. It's just far too fast movement for the human eye to pick up. So don't feel bad if you're not seeing the exact moment of contact, but the idea of watching the ball as far as you can, concentrating, focusing on the ball, and making contact with paddle cleanly in the center of it will make it a little bit easier. So you're right. If you give yourself enough space from the ball, if you have a good forward impact point that's a little bit off to the side, then uh, you should be okay uh, being in a good position to make quality contact with that shot. All right, next up from Tim, he asks, do you have any suggestions on speeding up your hands? And a related question, how do I train my mind slash eyes to read the opponent's paddle? Okay, well, let's take that second question first, Tim. Uh, reading the paddle. So seeing what's happening with your opponent's paddle before and at the moment of contact is really important because that'll give you some idea of where the ball is going, both in terms of direction, but also possibly height. So developing that kind of sensitivity or developing your eye to see those really subtle differences is an acquired skill, right? The same way that um, hitting a great third shot drop that stays nice and low is an acquired skill. The same way that chopping vegetables really quickly and consistently like you know those professional chefs do. That is an acquired skill. And so too is perceiving the subtleties of a 
opponent's paddle angle and really all elements of technique, including what their body is doing. So what can you do? Well, you can go out and you can get a friend to, from close range, hit balls pretty fast right at you. And what you can try to do is worry less about hitting the ball back or hitting it back where you want, but a little bit more on identifying, is this ball coming to the right side of your body or to the left side of your body? And practicing to pick up those subtle differences is really just a matter of putting in these quality reps. Now, try to not always get the same partner, so that way you can, you know, see these differences, uh, no matter who you're playing, not always the same person, but it is about putting in that time. Now, speaking of time, you talked about speeding up your hands. What can you do? Well, it's kind of two birds with one stone situation here. If your training partner is hitting balls fast to you from close range so you can pick up where the ball is going, well, this is also a chance for you to practice receiving those balls as they come quickly, right? Speeding up your hands as you talked about. So just getting used to the ball coming at that speed. I know when I'm getting ready for a tournament where you can play with the other pros, if I haven't been playing with players at that level recently, then those first bunch of hours that I'm there, receiving these really quick balls that are well disguised from close range is really hard. But I find that after a couple days of training, then you start to pick up those things a little bit quicker. So you could get your partner, your practice partner, to fire those balls from close range and see if you can... Uh, yes, identify where it's going, but then also hit it back well. You could even do a little bit of training uh, on your own close to a wall, right? Volleying back and forth rapidly as that ball is coming, those reflex volleys we sometimes call them. So it really is just a matter of putting in the reps. Next question, Tim asks, when I'm at the net, there are usually two broad areas to target at your opponent's body or open court. What is the decision tree one should go through to decide where to hit. Of course, with only a fraction of a second to react, all that information has to be pre-programmed in my head beforehand, which is a good point. Okay, decision tree, I like it. So a decision tree is just another way of talking about what's the process by which you make this decision where to hit. Well, I think you could come up with a few different decision trees. Um, here's how I like to think about it. When you get a ball that's above net level, the main advantage you have is the opportunity to hit the ball down on a downward trajectory. So it's less about worrying about whether you're hitting to an open court or not or at your opponent, and more about making sure you get the ball down. And whether that ball happens to be down through a gap in the court, I mean, that's always nice, or even just down where it's landing near the feet or even just before the feet of your opponents, that can be a really effective shot. And so to me, if we're talking about decision tree, is, is the ball high? Yes. In that case, you hit down, into the dirt, we can call it. And um, of course, there's some nuance. It's better to hit into the dirt at the weaker opponent, or it's better to hit into the dirt at the person who's closer to you, so they're going to have less time to react. But for the most part, if you just think, if I get a high ball, I hit down. That's part of that decision tree. As for the opponent's body or open court, like let's say you get a kind of marginal ball. It's not that ball that's obviously high, but it's not that ball that's obviously below net level. It's sort of at net level. Well, in that case, um, it depends how big the gap is, right? If you have a big gap and there's an open hole, then obviously that's a better place to hit. If, however, you've got two adult human bodies in front of you and there's no real open space, then at their body is fine. Um, better than at their body is if you pick a specific part of their body. And usually the forehand hip is a really good place to aim. Often what people will do is they'll hit hard right at the midsection of their opponents. And for many people, they kind of sit on that backhand 
with the paddle tilted toward the backhand side. And it's amazing how many times that paddle kind of acts as a shield and the ball comes right back. But if you can aim these fast shots at the forehand hip, that's a really difficult spot to defend because it's not quite a backhand, it's not quite a forehand, it's sort of in between. So if you are playing at their body, think forehand hip. Okay, we're going to be back to answer some more of Tim's questions in just a second. In the beginning, we gave you unlimited power and asked just one thing in return. Just one thing. Just keep it in. What were we thinking? Mistakes were made. Lives were lost. But this time, just relax. We've got you covered. Selkirk. Power. Control. No compromise. All right, we're back to Pickleball Problems. I'm your host, Mark Renison. Thanks for joining us. And today we're answering a number of questions from listener Tim Bogus. hope I'm pronouncing that right. Bogus. I like it. Okay, uh, next up, Tim asks, I'm now trying to get into more focused, higher level play groups. But for now, I usually have to play an open rec play or not play. When I do play open play, sometimes I'm better than my partner and I barely touch the ball. What is the best way to handle this? Accept the crushing defeat? Cover more of the court? Take more risk in my play? I want to be nice and respectful, but at the same time, I really hate to lose. All right, well, this is sort of a perennial problem that pickleball players have, is open play and being frozen out, being isolated, or being picked on if you're the weaker one. So in your situation, in these open play scenarios, you are the stronger player and you're being frozen out. Well, there's a couple things that you can do. You're right, you can take up more space. You can talk to your partner and say, hey, they're really picking on you. I'm gonna take up a little bit more space in the middle so they feel more pressure. Now, that being said, uh, your partner might not like that because they feel like you're stealing their fun every time you poach a ball, even if you put it away and it's great. Um, and even if you do take up more space, there's no guarantee that you get your paddle on more balls. But that is one opportunity, one opportunity to get more balls for yourself, one way to do it. Just make sure you have a check-in with your partner to make sure you're on the same page, or else there's either going to be bad feelings or perhaps a collision on those middle balls. The other thing you mentioned is you could take more risk, and that's right. So here's an example. If you play a third shot drop to your opponents, let's say that they do manage to hit it to you as a return of serve, and you play a third shot drop, which is by definition a slow ball, it is very likely that they are going to be able to hit that slow ball you sent them to your weaker partner. And so all of a sudden they're getting exactly what they want. So playing that slow ball is not really going to solve the problem for you, is it? But on the other hand, if you play a fast ball, a third shot drive, it's possible they direct it towards your partner. But I would say it's probably less likely. If you hit a good drive and they have less time to react, Sure, they may get the ball back in play, but maybe they're not as precise with it as they would be if it was a slow ball. So you'll see this in competitive doubles games when one person's being picked on, that they start to speed things up a little bit in an effort to resist that kind of isolation. So that may be a more risky play, playing those drives. Um, it's true. Now, I said, you know, imagine you happen to get the ball returned to you. Well, here's the thing. If you and your partner hit a slow, easy serve, probably to your opponent's strength, like their forehand, that increases the likelihood that they can return it to your weak partner. So imagine if you take more risk on that serve. You hit it harder. You hit it deeper. You hit it with more spin. 
You hit it towards a weakness, like a backhand. You make them move. Maybe, again, they get the ball back in play, and maybe they get it to your partner. But I'm willing to bet that the likelihood of you getting a ball in the middle of the court, or perhaps even a ball directly to you, goes up the tougher you make your serve. So yes, is it riskier to hit harder or deeper or spinnier or towards a target? Of course. But there's also a risk of you just putting your serve in play as though it means nothing. And the risk is they can start the point the way they want. So I think you're on the right track. Um, You could always, you know, mention to the opponents if you want to. You could taunt them a little bit. You could say, hey, is this really fun, guys? Is it fun for you? Winning 11-2? Never getting a tough ball hit to you? Uh, you got to decide a little bit how you want to take that. But um, from a tactical perspective, speeding things up is probably the way to go. And also talk with your partner about how you're going to share that space. Oh, there's one more thing I should add. You could always uh, switch or cross. So for example, if you're serving on the right side, let's say, and your partner's on the left, and as soon as you serve, or perhaps just before they make contact with the ball, you and your partner could switch sides quickly, surprising your opponents. You can do the same thing when you're returning serve. Let's say you're returning from the right side and you normally run straight ahead. Well, you could return from the right side, run straight ahead, and then just before your opponents hit that ball down the line to the left side, your partner, the two of you could cross, and all of a sudden they're hitting to you as a surprise. Again, you got to make sure your partner's on the page with that, but uh, that could be a fun way to add some new elements to your game. All right, let's see. One more question. Another thing I don't understand is the fetish with Jura balls. The only explanation I've heard is that even though the ball stinks, that's your opinion, all the best players have already invested so much time into learning how to play with it, rock, <laughs> that it sets them apart from the newbies. I've never heard anyone say the Jura is a better ball because I can hit shot X, Y, Z that I could never hit if I was using some other ball. Other than helping experienced players beat less experienced players, is there an advantage to using that ball, and if it's the case, why not have everyone play with the wooden paddles? Okay, I'm going to leave the wooden paddles point aside. So, talking about balls. um, One of the things that differentiates levels of player is their ability to successfully handle low balls. Balls that are below the top of the net. And the less skilled players are more likely to struggle with those low balls. Not to get them back in the court, but to hit them with a bit too much speed so then they sit up high and they get put away. And so less skilled players who don't really like those low balls tend to like balls that are a bit bouncier, right? Because then those balls don't stay so low. They bounce up a bit higher, and higher balls typically are easier to handle than lower balls, right? We all know this. So... The thing is about the the ball that you mentioned or some of the other balls that get used in major tournaments is that they don't bounce as high. And so the advanced players who, yeah, partly through practice and they've just spent so much time playing with this ball, but also through skill, right? Being able to receive a low ball and not pop it up, right? To be able to play a good dink or drop of your own. That is a skill, And so it's not just more experienced, less experienced players, it's more skilled players that can play successfully with balls that don't bounce as high. That's really what separates them. And so if you use balls that are always bouncing up high, in some ways that's kind of like an equalizing factor, or in some ways that's a, it doesn't, 
it doesn't give more skilled players, at least players who are skilled at handling low balls, the opportunity to use that skill effectively, right? And so I guess, sure, in a way, it's sort of equalizing them. I guess you could say that. Um, but I think at the same time, it's also fair to say that there's a, a really interesting, really challenging part of pickleball, which is handling low balls effectively. And if you're using balls that are rarely producing low low shots, the need to use that skill, then uh, it, it really changes the way that the game is played. All right, that's it for this episode of the show. Thanks to Tim Bogus for sending in his questions. Do you have some questions you'd like me to address? I'd love to hear from you. And it's, you can always email me like Tim did. Or, you know what's even more fun? If you make a voice memo on your phone, you can find it. Just search voice memo on your phone. And you can record a voice memo, and then you can send it in, and our listeners can listen to you ask the questions instead of me interpret them. If you do decide to send us some questions, send them to mark at thirdshotsports.com and uh, we'd love to hear from you and talk about your pickleball problems. Until next time, thanks for listening. Bye.